Hi everyone, it's Ellen. In this episode of the Pro Beauty Pod, I talked to Dr. Ahmed Elmantasa, who's a GP and aesthetics doctor. Over the course of his career, Ahmed's built up a huge following on social media, so we'll be talking about the secrets behind his success and how he does this ethically. We're lucky enough to have Ahmed talking about this topic at Professional Beauty North on the 24th of September in a lot more detail than we had time to cover in this episode. So if you haven't already, then please register for your free ticket to the show. You can find the link to do this on our website, which is professionalbeauty.co.uk. As well as covering social media in this episode, Ahmed and I also talk about his journey into medicine and hot topics in the beauty and aesthetics industries, including regulation. I hope you enjoy listening. Hi Ahmed, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good, I'm really excited about today. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, I think. So to start off with, could you tell us a bit more about you and your kind of career backstory? My name is Dr. Ahmed Al-Muntasa. I'm known as the Aesthetics Doctor Online. Um, I'm a cosmetic doctor and a GP. Um, I have been a doctor for about eight years or so now. Uh, Started kind of posting my before and after results on social media. And then people like them and kind of my socials starts blowing up. Um, and then over the last year, seven years or so, I've accumulated about 1.1 million followers kind of combined on social, which is crazy to say. <laughs> um, my kind of medical background, um, I went to university in St. Andrews in Scotland and then in Manchester and then UCL. Um, so I've kind of made my way down the country, starting in Scotland and then end up in London. Um, I did GP training um, and I still work in the NHS as well so I kind of split my time half private kind of cosmetics and then half NHS Um, because I I think working in the NHS really keeps my medical knowledge and keeps my skills up to uh, really updated because obviously there's loads of targets that we need to hit with that so I like kind of you know being on top of my game um, that side of it. I did a lot of um, kind of surgical training in over the years and a lot of dermatology training. And then all that accumulated and ended up being the aesthetics doctor, uh, which I focus on kind of more non-surgical treatments now. And what made you want to go into medicine in the first place? I feel like the, the answer that everyone expects with that question is like, to help people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? It's that like answer that you say in your medical school interview. But obviously that I loved, um, I loved the, 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 the knowing how the human body worked. I find the human body so fascinating. I'm kind of growing up, um, in Libya where where I'm from. Unfortunately, the, the, the healthcare system there was not great, um, because it was a developing country. It's a third world country. And I really found that, especially when loved ones were, um, getting unwell or developing cancer and really going through the medical system, there was not a lot of help that they could, they could get locally. And I felt I wanted to help. And that's why I wanted to go to university. I wanted to go to university abroad um, and try and help people as much as I can. But also, I think medicine for me, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I wanted, um, I wanted a degree that allows me to do anything afterwards. And I think medicine actually opens a lot of doors. What made you want to go to the UK when you're kind of looking at universities to go to abroad? Yeah, I mean, uh, my family had a long relationship with the UK over the years because my brother and my sister both lived in the UK at the time. So my brother was doing a PhD um, in the UK 
And then my sister actually ended up marrying his best friend from university. And then she moved over as well. So I had that kind of foot um, in the door already. Um, and then when I was researching medical um, universities and so on, I was thinking of the U.S. at the time. But then the path to get into university in the U.S. was very, very tumultuous because obviously you need to do a pre-meds and then medicine. And there are loads of loads of things that can go wrong along the way because there are multiple entry exams and I was worried that what happens if after four years I don't pass you know one of the entry exams to the next stage you're kind of stranded whereas I like that in the UK once you're into medicine it's a run through until you finish um, and then when I was applying to universities I got my unconditional offer from St Andrews and it was just a couple of years after Prince William and Kate went and Loki, a part of me was like, let me maybe I'll meet my prince there. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> Plot twist didn't. So <laughs> until many years later. <laughs> no, I've heard St. Andrews is lovely. Oh, so nice. I loved it. And I mean, Scottish people are so, so friendly, so wholesome, um, so welcoming, especially with the fact that I started university um, when I was 16. Um, and that's moving from North Africa to St. Andrews. Um, the, the warmth of the locals and everyone there really helped me, you know, settle in and so on. Because it was really scary being a 16-year-old surrounded by everyone that's 18 or 19. Um, yeah, I can't imagine moving to a whole different country when I was 16 and starting a medical degree. I sometimes feel like I was a bit of a badass child when I was... You know, because my parents actually wanted me to do engineering um, back in school. And my dad very much sat me down. And he's like, listen, you're going to follow on my footsteps. You're going to do engineering, university training, whatever. Um, and I was like, sure, sure, Baba, of course. Um, and I applied to all medicine. Didn't tell him until I got my unconditional offers. And he's like, where did you get in? I'm like, St. Andrews. It's like, oh, I didn't know they offered engineering degrees. I'm like they don't <laughs> surprise <laughs> surprise so he's like you're moving to a different country to do a different degree to what we thought i'm like yes <laughs> so you've worked a lot in general practice but you're kind of heading more towards the aesthetic side of thing now what made you want to make that transition i think um after the well let's start with the pandemic itself i mean during that period i went back to the nhs full time i was working on the covid wards um, up in the north, actually near Manchester, um, I was working in the maternity wards. I was doing, you know, helping with doing surgeries for women that were that were COVID positive, um, and you know, in labour and so on. It was it was a very difficult time to be a doctor, and I think after doing that for eighteen months or almost two years, um, I felt really burnt out, to be honest. And I think then transitioning back into general practice after going to hospital. Um, again, GP has changed in that time. It became, you know, the targets are higher. We're seeing more patients. The appointments are getting shorter. Um, and I think being a GP has not been the same per se, um, you know, over the years. I still love it. Uh, it will always be something I will do. But I think as time went on, I'm enjoying both aesthetics and, and GPing or maybe aesthetics a little bit more at the moment, but um, I will always at least locum in GP to just kind of keep it going really, because I, I, I do really enjoy it. <laughs>
As we mentioned earlier, you're very successful on social media. You've got is it a million followers on Instagram, Instagram and yeah. nearly 20,000 on TikTok. Yeah. Um, what made you want to start posting content and why do you think it's important for people to be, or professionals to be posting content? I think for any business, you really need to be on social media. Um, and I, I mean, I've been so lucky that that took me to, to talk to a lot of um, professionals, people that are starting businesses, talking about the power of social media. And I mean, if you've got a business and you're not on socials, you're doing something wrong, really. Um, unless you're very well established that actually word of mouth is enough. But if you're still new, it's a must. Um, it connects you with thousands, if not millions of people worldwide. Um, for me specifically, when I first started in the industry, I remember thinking I didn't see everyone um, on people's pages. I didn't see, I only saw kind of a specific type of patient, you know, the before and afters. I didn't see people... I didn't see a lot of black people, I didn't see a lot of Asian people, I didn't see trans people, I didn't see all different, you know, individuals. And obviously, being foreign myself and then being LGBT, I sat in certain boxes that I just didn't feel like represented, were represented in a lot of the before and afters. Um, so, and I think this is why people really resonated with my page initially. From the get-go, I was showing every treatment on every skin tone and every skin type on every individual and and actually people really resonated with huh that treatment is not just for kind of white women it, it could be shown or done on everyone and anyone um and then people started sharing it and i think before i knew it it just became a thing and people really felt represented and i think that led to me developing a little community of people that followed me that really were invested um, because when you're posting on social media, it's not just click post. It's actually you post with purpose. You post it to uh, the group of people that you kind of developed over the years because you know that they will like that content to develop your community, to enhance that. And actually you interact with them with the sole purpose of inter not entertainment per se, but uh, to actually give them content that they will enjoy not just like oh whatever content i shot today let me just post it that's not really how social media works and i think sometimes people post for the sake of posting that's not really how it works it's similar with you know if you're doing a treatment with someone there's an indication there's a reason why you do it and it's similar when you post there should be an end goal why am i posting this video to for, to make people feel something to make people know something to educate them to enlighten them about something so you always need to think what's the purpose of me cl clicking post uh, when did you kind of start building up your social media how long has it taken you to get to this point years to be honest with you Ellen, um, my the hardest thing was the first 10,000 followers the, ten, the first 10,000 followers killed me <laughs> it was so difficult because in the, in the beginning, you know, when you look at someone's Instagram, anyone under 10,000 followers, you can see the numbers like clearly there. Mm -hmm. So for someone to click follow, it changes immediately. And people really feel like, why should I give you the extra one? Yeah, they've got the power. Yeah, they got the power. And it truly took so long to reach that first 10K. Once you have a letter in the number, it's very, very different. Because actually when someone clicks follow then, they're one of the masses. And they feel a bit more, you know, it's fine. Whereas before 10K, it's quite difficult. 
Um, for me, it was a lot of interaction with my followers. And it, from the get-go, I was doing kind of daily um, so daily things and stories. So Mondays was, say, well, Tuesdays were my Talk of Tuesday, which was my Q&A. Wednesday were my What Wednesdays, which is a kind of an interactive thing. So I kept my stories really interactive. And I think people really liked the fact that they had this direct access to a doctor um, that kept things entertaining, but also very educational and very, very much the second that they were went off my page, they feel like they learned something or actually added some sort of value to them. And people really like that. Yeah. And you're still really engaged with your followers. Like even though you've got a million, you still do kind of ask me anything and you'll actually reply to people and sort of comment on people's posts. I love it. I mean, I think this is a really common mistake, you know, when people grow an audience, they think because those people are there, like that's it, they're going to be there forever. That's not really how it works because as numbers go up, people lose interest actually and say your first thousand followers compared to your last thousand followers the first thousand they might not even remember you anymore because it's been so many years since they followed and actually because the way the algorithm works that if they've not interacted with you in a while instagram stops showing them your content and this is why you need to keep regularly engaging and interacting and keeping things interesting otherwise they're like i'm over it unfollow let's continue because i think with social media it is work it's hard work you know it's not just fun all the time Uh, you need to put in hours to kind of create the content edit the content post it and engage with it and really keep people in yeah because i do i'll do sort of a a purge of who i'm following if it's someone i've not interacted with or engaged with recently then i don't see the point why would you you know what i mean it's just extra baggage on your follow account um I do it as well, to be honest with you. If, For me, at least, I, I love kind of educational content. If I follow someone and I go through their page and I'm like, you know what? I have not learned anything from you in a while. Why am I here? Like, you're, you're not serving your purpose, if you know what I mean. Because if I followed you in the first place to learn something about something, then you're not serving that purpose. Therefore, it's been real. Did you have any social media training or did you teach yourself and pick things up along the way? You know, um, funny story. It's just kind of me doing it. I mean, back at uni, I went traveling after uni. And for some reason, I, again, uh, back in the day, I had like about 20,000 followers on Instagram. But in 2015, 20,000 followers was a lot of people, you know, on Instagram. And uh, for some reason, I always had... I got it. I think I understood Instagram quite well. Um, so I used those skills I learned from 2015, 2016. So when I started my business in 2019, 2018, 2019, I kind of utilized those skills just differently to help my business grow. Um, but no, I've never had any official training of how to use it. It was kind of trial and error. Um and I think people sometimes are, and I get this a lot when I do kind of my talks or seminars and so on about social media, people are really scared to post because I think people are scared to say the wrong thing. People are so scared to, oh, maybe my content is not that interesting. My content is not that, you know, professional. Just post, honestly. Obviously, as long as you're happy enough with the before and after, as long as you're showing who you are and what you do, 
people will engage with it because actually what we do is interesting to someone out there. Someone will always find it interesting because, you know, sometimes we find our own lives boring, but actually to someone else from the outside, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, I'm really nosy. So I love seeing like the most generic, boring things that people are doing. I'm like, wow. <laughs> what, what you're having for dinner, one of my favorite doctors, she is a great cook as well. And she posts these stories on Instagram about her cooking. And to her, I was having a conversation with her and she's like, oh, it's quite boring, right? I'm like, no, it's so fascinating that you're able to cook up a storm, you know, after a long day at work and make these amazing meals when actually I can barely order that on Deliveroo. So you're doing just fine. What are your top tips to gaining engaged followers? Mm, I think content creation needs to have purpose. So similar when it comes to treating patients, we have meetings beforehand to think about like, you know, what what are the best treatments out there? What's happening, you know, in the industry and so on. It's similar with content. Every time you're planning to create content, sit down beforehand, go through and make a plan of what you would like to create. Um, look at what others are making and then add your own flavor to it. And then actually content creation should be a part of your weekly routine. It's not something that you just like stick in somewhere in your diary. You need to have a chunk of time every week or every month, um, if you're organized enough, to be able to actually sit there, create content, have professional equipment um, to create that content, get it professionally edited and actually post it out there. People want quality. People don't want just quantity. Um, you know, in the time that we live in now, um, and actually be, there are so many different apps out there that allows you to edit content quite professionally on your phone. Um, you can get cheap cameras. I mean, I remember in 2018 when I first started kind of professionally doing Instagram, I bought a secondhand Canon camera and I think it was like a hundred quid or 150 pounds, but it allowed me to take things to the next level because people sometimes are like, oh, I don't have, you know, money to pay for these fancy fancy cameras that are like 5k you don't need them you really just need a camera that's good enough well these days iphone cameras are pretty good to be fair a ring light maybe a mic if you do a lot of chatting but actually just the normal headphones that you've similar to the ones you've got now are really good uh, and maybe a stand that's all you need and just crack on talk about your specialty what is your thing like what do you do and just do well? For example, with me, I do loads of non-surgical rhinos and tear troughs and a lot of kind of body treatments as well. But these are my main things. Like I can talk about them all day long. And actually, every time I make a video about it, a patient will learn something new and they will take that one little nugget of knowledge and think about it and potentially book a treatment. How can people talk about their treatments and services on social media while still being ethical? I think that's really difficult, um, and I, I really, really appreciate that. I think that obviously ties in with my talk at the um, at the conference. Do you want to give us a little a little bit of information about it? So you're speaking at PB North in September. So you'll be on the business and digital skills stage on the 24th of September at 3 p.m. And you'll be talking about how to ethically promote beauty and aesthetics treatments on social media. It's hard kind of marketing your services 
but also in a way that's ethical and isn't kind of breaking the rules or I guess kind of making people feel like they need to have these treatments. Yeah, I think it's you need to make it very clear that the majority of our patients, I say majority because some might need a treatment, the majority do not need treatment. It's, it's something that we do to enhance what we have. And I think it's very clear for your patients or for when you're marketing yourself online to make it clear to, to people that actually what we do here is for beauty. You know, if you don't get this treatment, you will be absolutely fine. <laughs> and actually getting a treatment is not going to change your life. Um, and I see patients all the time sometimes thinking, well, by getting that non-surgical rhi- you know, rhinoplasty, I'm going to get the promotion at work. I'm going to get the, you know, whatever business deal that I have. And actually, those are the patients that it's worth having an, a bit of an extra consultation with and explore their ideas, their concerns, their expectations, because they're probably not getting the treatment for the right reason. Um, secondly, thinking about the kind of ASA, which obviously the advertising agency, um, familiar, familiarize yourself with the guidelines that they have, because it's really important. There's so many guidelines on their website um, to know kind of what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. So, for example, anything prescription, um, like botulinum toxin, we don't market it whatsoever because obviously that in itself is illegal. Um, thinking about, I do a lot of influencer marketing, and actually the guidelines with that change constantly. So again, familiarize with you, yourself with what can and we what can't we do. Um, making it very clear to your audience if this is a paid collaboration with an influencer, if it's gifted, if it's a PR visit, whatever it is, it needs to be very clearly stated there. Um, so your audience knows what sort of relationship um, is going on. And actually, the other thing that doctors do, or sorry, practitioners do generally, sometimes on social media that we forget to kind of make it clear to our patient, is that if we get free things, like if a company sends you skincare and you talk about it, you need to declare that still, that actually you got gifted that skincare. Um, So there's so many different bits to be ethical on social. Um, And that's why I think you just need to go on the ASA website quite self-explanatory guidelines and kind of make yourself a little bit more um, knowledgeable about that. What are the rules for stuff that's not injectable or invasive? So stuff like microneedling? Yeah, I mean, with microneedling, because it's not prescription treatment, you can can obviously market it online. But I always say, look at the manufacturer's guidelines. So for example, if you're using the skin pen, for instance, which is the device that I use, officially there are certain indications that you know they've trialed, they've tested, and that's the official recommendation of it can be used for these things. Whereas people, I see them all the time talking about microneedling, for example, that it's gonna cure all these other things. Well, actually, if it's not officially been recommended by the manufacturer, how do you know if it's gonna help with these? That's actually unethical for you to recommend. So you think with whatever device that you're using for microneedling, whatever peel you're doing, you can you should only like advertise or recommend the official um, indications of that specific treatment because actually anything else is off-label so if you're gonna recommend something that's off-label again that is actually allowed but you need to clearly state to your audience that this is an off-label use of the microneedling device of that specific peel i.e the manufacturer did not test this indication 
I'm actually using it based on my own experience. And that's absolutely fine if you're quite experienced in that. But if you're not, maybe you're going to be causing more damage, actually, if you do that. So you need to think about it a little bit. I think it's really interesting what you said earlier about how kind of making sure that clients or patients are getting treatments for the right reasons because that's something like I'm kind of in the, in the industry and that's still something yeah. that I'm guilty of. This is where my GP hat comes on where you need to explore the ideas concerns. There's something called ICE which is ideas concerns and expectations and this is basically a filter that we use to really understand why is that patient sat in front of you? Why are they really in that consultation? Once you've answered the three questions, those three questions, it gives you a much clearer idea if the patient is the right patient for a treatment or not. And I think this is where you really need to be ethical in your thinking and think, well, actually, yes, that patient should get the treatment or actually maybe the treatment is not for them. Send them away, let them think about it. Um, and, you know, yes, you might lose you know some money there because you're not going ahead with a treatment but actually for your own peace of mind for your own um you know just being a good person i think that's enough of a win what do you think about there's a lot of unqualified people giving out opinions and advice on things on instagram and tiktok um i think um yeah, as much as I love social media, um, and it's given me and given a lot of people, you know, careers and a lot of great exposure, but actually it gives a lot of people a platform that maybe they shouldn't have got a platform in the first place. And I think this is why, uh, in a way, we need to do our own research before trusting anyone and everyone on social media, because anyone can stop post, posting, you know, on socials. So actually, before trusting someone's advice, do a bit of research about them. If they're a doctor or a nurse, for instance, you can Google them and they will come up on the GMC or the, the nursing register. Um, see if they're actually a doctor or a nurse. I mean, I've seen people online say they're a doctor. When I looked them up on the GMC website, they're not registered. So they're not a doctor in the UK. Well, they've not got a license. And similar with nurses, actually. So doing our own research and not just taking everything at face value is quite important. Um, sometimes people say, well, shouldn't Instagram filter those people out? It's very difficult to do so because anyone can create an account, actually. So I think we need to use our own critical thinking sometimes. And, well, if that person is giving me advice that contradicts everyone else's, maybe their advice was not that valid. Yeah, because there is a lot of it out there. And a lot of it is kind of skincare hacks and stuff like using cucumber or yeah. whatever. Um, but then you get the ones that are slightly more dangerous. Like I've seen people who've bought needling kits online and then they're kind of showing it off and showing people what they're doing with it. Yeah, it's scary for me. I mean, I see that all the time. And I, a, large, you know, a large proportion of my patients are women of color. And actually, so many of them have come in with really major hyperpigmentation, major scarring from these home remedy kit stuff that people are doing, you know, from these kits from Alibaba and AliExpress and all that, that actually they think they're doing good for their skin, but the results are very different to what they expected. If anything, they end up with, you know, worse kind of skin than they started. Uh, another hot topic in beauty and aesthetics is obviously regulation 
what do you think about the kind of processes that are going on to make stuff regulated now? And what treatments do you think should be more regulated? I think um, I'm glad that there are a lot more conversations in the UK about regulations. I think we know we have a problem. And I think we're at that stage now in the UK that like, there's, a, there's an issue here. If places can do your hair, nails and Botox or your filler, that should not be, you know, made the same. Things can go significantly wrong with an injectable treatment that if you're not a medical professional, you know, you can get someone blind. You can actually kill someone's skin with a treatment, whereas getting their nails done, maybe the complication of that, yes, there could be small, serious complications, but actually it's probably safer than an injectable treatment. And this is why I think, my opinion at least, only medical professionals should be doing injectable treatment. I think things like microneedling, things like peels and so on, I understand that it's a beauty treatment, I agree. However, with things that can go wrong that require a medical professional to treat, things that require, for example, blocking a blood vessel that you need to dissolve using hyalase, which is a medical emergency, you need to be a medic to be able to deal with that. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, I think it's only medical professionals. So taking things forward or further, I think that the, the, we, we started, you know, things right with, you know, um, stopping under 18, getting treatment done, making that illegal. I think that's a great first step, but I think now the next step will be some sort of register, some sort of, um, qualification, some sort of, um, regulating body when it comes to the aesthetics industry because actually people forget that it's called aesthetic medicine it's medical you know um, and even within the medical professionals I don't think every medical professional is the same um, you need to prove you know that you're able to deal with a complication for example to be able to inject someone in the first place do you think consumers are becoming more aware of the difference in sort of the safety of treatments? 100%. And I think this is where the beauty of social media comes in. People are, you know, following pages like mine, pages like uh, you know, from other doctors that we talk about safety. We talk about how do you vet your injector? Because I, I think, you know, in a consultation, it's not just the medical professional asking questions. It should be the other way around as well as a two-way streak, you know. The medical professional looks at how suitable the patient is for the treatment and the patient checks how suitable that medical professional is to actually treat them. Um, I think patients are more empowered than ever and more knowledgeable than ever to do their research online, to check the GMC website, to check all these other resources, you know, Safe Face and all that. Um, to see if that person is actually qualified. Um, I think it's, patients are more empowered to ask questions, things like, how many of these treatments have you done? How many complications have you had? Um, because having complications is a normal part of you know, clinical practice. I think if you found an injector or a doctor or a nurse or whatever that says they've never had a complication, they're either not injecting enough people, i.e. they just not got the experience, or B, they're frankly lying about it. Um, but what makes a good injector is actually being able to deal with those complications. So yeah, I think it's quite important for patients to ask how many the, you know, the injector have had done, any complication, do they have an emergency kit if things go wrong? If your injector is not able to answer these questions or they give you, you know, just a faffy answer, that's your cue to exit. 
So consumers should be sort of shopping around for therapists and practitioners and the consultations as much for them as it is for you. 100%. Yes, I think my favourite patients are the ones that come in really well informed because it feels like a conversation. You know, it feels like it's a two-way thing, not just the me talking at them or assessing them um, and so on. And that just makes, in my opinion at least, I feel like that's more of an informed consent when it comes to getting a treatment done. How long do you think it's going to be until, will it, will it ever be perfect, the situation with regulation? I mean, I think we love to take our time in the UK. <laughs> we really take our time with things. Um, so I feel like it's probably going to be a while um, because over the years, you know, there are so many non-medics um, that built very successful businesses doing injectable treatments. So... Sometimes you you worry and you think, well, what's going to happen to those individuals if there is that, you know, immediate regulation of only medics can do injectable treatments? So I think people need to really think about that to try and kind of find avenues to people that diversify into other sort of treatments that are allowed at that stage. And I think that just takes time. Um, so hopefully I want the regulation to be done ASAP, but I think practically... It's probably going to take a few years. It might be concerning for those people who have those non-medics who have built their business on um, injectables. But I think now that the demand for slightly less invasive stuff like needling on pills has grown so much recently. Huge. Especially after the pandemic, I think um, everyone had become like a little skincare guru or a little like serum queen, you know, after the pandemic. Because people really invested time into their skin and into their home treatments and so on so i think kind of post pandemic a lot of people are getting you know peels and skin treatments microneedling and so on so there are so much potential in, in those avenues for people to explore if you could change one thing about the beauty or the aesthetics industries apart from regulation what would it be apart from regulation I think for me, it'll be fake before and afters. I find it, um, I find it really interesting, the, the, the before and after side of it, um, because I've seen so many and I see so many before and afters that were taken on different days, that were taken at different light, using different lights, different angles, different positions, using filters, you know, suddenly after getting a tear trough treatment done, someone's whole face shape has changed their skin tone has changed and you're like, huh, this does not seem legit to me. And I think um, I would hope at least one day that actually photos on Instagram and social media, if they're edited in any way, there will be some sort of disclaimer. I think that's a thing now in Scandinavian countries where if you've edited the photo in any way, you just need to put a little sticker on, you know, it's like the, the paid promo kind of tag thing, um, just so people are aware that it's been edited in any way. Yeah, I think I have seen some people doing that on social media recently. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the funny thing that I see a lot of when it comes to treating the bottom half of the face, like with the jawline and the chin treatments, you know, the before will be set up and then the after will be lying down. So gravity really tightens things. Mm. And you're like, hmm, this is fishy, darling. This is fishy. Yeah, and that's not just kind of injectables. I've seen stuff like that with more sort of body sculpting treatments as well. There'll be a different angle. 
or like you know twisting a little bit so obviously with a female figure twisting will make the hips look a lot more defined um yeah people really manipulate the before and after i think yeah and that definitely it ties into the whole ethical aspect of it as well what's the one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self when you were starting out i i have a lot of doubts i think i have a lot of you know what ifs you're just so scared and i think there's this pressure especially with millennials like having everything figured out you know from day one and i think it's okay not to have everything figured out from the beginning you know and i think it's okay to try things and it's okay to fail at things i think people always talk about the successes i won this i did that i achieved this but no one really talks about that to achieve one like winning one of these awards behind me the background of that is losing 10 other awards you know what i mean and actually people don't talk about the journey of getting to doing something well or succeeding at something because you probably failed at a million other things to reach that and i think you you learn so much and you grow so much from failure because really failure is what makes you step out of your comfort zone and what makes you reflect um and actually change things if i fail at doing x it means that i'm not doing it right how can i change that and it makes you think critically to be able to actively change behaviors change um the way that you do things to grow and you learn from it so i think failing is actually a really big part of success yeah getting things wrong is a really good learning process which three beauty products could you not live without Ooh, okay so my three will be the um obagi 15 percent vitamin c serum i love that i use that every single day the skin better science alpha ret overnight cream which is um which is my uh, retinaldehyde product for nighttime just to keep things looking you know fresh um and then my helio care spf 50. i love it like literally everyone i've spoken to always says spf and that's so me <laughs> yeah honestly, i love I, I mean it's so funny my bathroom downstairs i've literally just got like 50 different spfs i just love i feel like spf is like a reflection of my mood as well sometimes i use just sheer spf sometimes i have a tinted spf but obviously always broad spectrum and always SPF 50. Mm, yeah, I went on holiday recently. I was like making, going around, making sure everyone was wearing SPF 50. Cause like, oh, we've got factor 20. I was like, no. You're like, S50. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I, uh, I scared my partner into just wearing SPF 50 now. Um, he had a big, we were on holiday recently as well. He had like a big like hat, had a little thingy on top of him had SPF 50 everywhere, he was in the shade, and I was like, I think I scared him into just being in the shade now. You've trained him well. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope you loved it as much as I did. Honestly, it was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. Hopefully, guys, you've learned something. You've um, taken even one thing from what I said to help improve your business. Please feel free to DM me if you have any questions about social media and growing your business because I think ultimately when it comes to what I do, I love collaboration. I love actually working with others to move all of us forward. So um, if you have any questions, check my social media out. It's at The Aesthetics Doctor. So 
at the aesthetics doctor one word perfect thank you so much and thank you for listening everyone thank you guys bye